Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is R.O. Kwon, whose debut novel, The Incendiaries, which explored the story of a young Korean-American woman at an elite American university who's drawn into acts of domestic terrorism by a cult tied to North Korea, was praised as absolutely electric, while Kwon herself was called a major talent. Most recently, Kwon, who was born in South Korea but has lived for most of her life in the United States, has co-edited with Garth Greenwell, Kink, a groundbreaking anthology of literary short fiction exploring love desire and BDSM across the sexual spectrum, which includes her own story, Safe Word. Welcome to our shelves, Reese. It's really lovely to have you on the podcast today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, firstly, I want to congratulate you because Kink has just been published um, by Scribner in uh, the UK and by Simon & Schuster in the US, and it's getting wonderful reviews. Um, So I presume at the moment, publicizing it via events online and sort of writing pieces is preoccupying quite a lot of your time, right? Since the book has come out, it's been um, it's been a little busy, but also it's been you know it's a lot of it's been so lovely. Um, obviously, the pandemic is overall an absolute disaster. Um, I don't believe in silver linings, you know, like the, no, none of this really had to happen. Um, but I that said, I do really appreciate the ways in which um, every night, you know, like events are are accessible. Um, I can I can attend so many more events. And it's been really great to be able to pull together events um, that maybe we wouldn't have been able to before the pandemic. Yeah, of course, because in the same way we're doing the podcast and speaking at kind of cross um, countries and things like that, you can get a lot of your um, contributors together, I presume, for online events that might not have happened in, if we weren't in the Zoom world that we're living in now, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think um, we're still finalizing a couple of the details, but I think our great hope is that um, we'll have events for all the contributors. I think we're, I think we're, I think we're managing to do that. Um, and oh, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's a kind of rarity that you would never get beforehand. So not a, yeah, not, let's say not a silver lining, but a good, a good thing to, you know, to be happening, let's say. Um, and so presumably now you're doing a lot of the um, publicizing for, for kink. Obviously, it's taking you away a little bit from your own writing, I presume. Are you taking a sort of break to do this right now? Or are you trying to do some writing alongside it? Um, that's actually been a big, okay. So when the incendiaries came out, when my first novel came out, um, there was like a full year when I barely wrote fiction, you know? Um, and even though I write a lot of nonfiction, I very much think of myself as like a novelist who writes nonfiction sometimes. Um, it's just not that it's just that fiction is where my heart is and fiction is where, um, I feel as though I can dig the deepest and, and like be, um, be a more truthful version of myself um, with that sort of curtain of plausible deniability. Like I feel so much more free. Um, But yeah, so I lost like a full year over the incendiaries and I just was like, you know what? I'm going to remember that on my deathbed. I'm going to remember that I lost a year during which I didn't write. Um, And so it was really a priority for me to not let that happen. And so I've kept writing pretty much every day. Um, Granted, like right now I'm at a place with my novel in progress where I'm trying to write 300 words a day. Um, and that oft, very often hasn't happened. Um, in the month of February, that hasn't happened since February 1st, except yesterday. I finally got to like 3.07. I was like, Chef! Right. <laughs> Congratulations, you're back on time. <laughs> so I've been trying really hard to keep writing. 
And have you found that your writing has been affected by the pandemic? I mean, a lot of people obviously have discovered that working from home or trying to kind of, you know, shift things is is one kind of problem, but also concentration spans have really lapsed, I think, for a lot of us. Um, and I wanted to know how, you know, the last year has really affected you, maybe your writing, but also perhaps your reading as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'd be curious how it affected you too, because for the first few months of the pandemic, I absolutely couldn't. Um, it wasn't just that I couldn't write, which is bad enough. I was writing one sentence a day. I was forcing myself to it. But like this like extremely fragile lifeline connected me back to my novel. <laughs> um, but I also couldn't read. And, and like I've never in my life been in such a crisis that I couldn't read fiction. Like that was like when I've had like my when I've had like multiple loved ones in a different ICUs, like I was still able to read. And I think that I, I'm still recovering from 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 how disorienting it was to not have access to my favorite thing, you know, like w while I was in this time of, and it, it seems so common. Most of my writer friends couldn't read. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was the first few months. Um, it started changing when, you know, I really did it. I haven't actually, I don't think I've said this story um, yet in public. I told my editor, um, what really changed things for me is I talked to 10 men in a row um, 10 male writers, many of whom are very, very lovely men, you know, they're my friends. Um, they, who all had kept writing through the pandemic. Some had young children, some had, um, I just was like, this will not, I cannot live with it. I cannot live with this. Like I was like, I feel personally obligated to put my body into this line of 10 men. I refuse. <laughs> and something that really helped me, and I'll mention this in case it's helpful to anyone else. Um, is to set up accountability systems with friends. And so right now I have two different accountability systems going. One is over email, one is over text. And we just like update each other every day on like what we worked on. Maybe we didn't get to work, you know, and like, that's fine too. Like there's a pandemic, like, of course. Um, but it's just so nice to have that sense of a deadline and to have a sense of, I mean, it's not even really quite a deadline, but to have a sense that people are expecting something from me and I'm expecting something from them because I've, I realized that I'm really good at, um, it's really important to me that I not let down other people. Um, I tend to hit deadlines, you know, like I tend to, I tend to remember things for other people. Um, I'm equally good at letting myself down, you know, like I, I can like break promises to myself. <laughs> I can break like 40 between like when I get up um, and, and, and like I have coffee, like I can break 40 promises to myself. So I, I, when I realized that I was like, okay, I just need to have systems in place so that I'm not, I'm not, so that it's not just me. So there are other people in there. And that's been really, really helpful. I imagine that's going to be make a lot of sense and be very good advice for a lot of people. But I know exactly what you mean. If you promised or even given somebody the idea that you're going to be doing something, it's much harder to then not do it than if you've just said to yourself, I mean, like, you know, I can tell myself all sorts of things in any shape or form that I'm going to do, but I never hold myself accountable for it. But it's other people like, you know, whether you don't like losing face or you don't want to let them down or there's all these other things in, in the mix, aren't there? So that's it. If people want to start reading or writing again, I suppose that's the uh, that's the way to do it. Tell someone else you're going to do it and then, you know, be able to talk about your work with them. So that's quite helpful. Yeah. And I think especially, you know, in a time of um, such terrible isolation, mm -hmm. um, it has also very much contributed to um, a general sense, a general, really wonderful sense of feeling really quite connected to a lot of my friends and communities. Um, and I think part of it is, it's like, 
daily contact is really what it is. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very important right now. Well, jumping right in, um, especially if you're saying that now you've got your sort of reading back and you're able to do that with a little bit more concentration than maybe in the uh, earlier on in the pandemic. Could you tell me about um, two books that are currently on your bedside table waiting for you to read them or being in the process being read? Yes, of course. Um, oh, my gosh. And it is such, can, can we just take a moment? It is such <laughs> a joy to be able to read again. Like, I will never take this for granted again. <laughs> Every time I've, like, read, like, 50 pages and not really noticed, I'm just like, oh, my God, it's back. It's back. Like, it's like, I, I did not know this could leave. I did not know the ability to read novels, to read fiction, to read short stories could leave me. Um, and, I, and I never want to know that again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. take a moment take a moment just to kind of be grateful for it you're right though it is funny how so many people seem to lose that ability early on and then felt very felt even more disorientated and even more sort of out of step with the world because they weren't able to find solace in something like reading that they'd been used to doing right yes and then I was and then I don't know about you but part of what I absolutely adore about fiction is it takes me out of my head and I don't want to spend all this time inside my own head you know yeah yeah no completely um, yeah, and I think especially with the world has been so scary and then not having that release has been so, or like just not having that company has been so wild. Um, so yes, now I can read, thank God, never taking this for granted again. <laughs> um, a book that I'm currently reading is The Office of Historical Collections by Daniel Evans. Um, it came out just a little bit ago and it's incredible. I mean, I've loved her work since um, first reading the first short story. I think it was the first short story she published. It was one of her first ones um, that she published in the Paris Review. Um, and I remember that very clearly because at the time I was, um, I was, I was working as a volunteer reader, as like an intern reader at the Paris Review. Um, and I remember like the excitement um, in the office over this story. And I read her, I loved her story collection. Um, and this is her second book since then. Um, and it's, and it's such a, I don't even, it's such like a, the stories, each one is so rich and so, um, and so I feel as though anytime you call fiction intelligent, it almost sounds like it's not a compliment because of course fiction should be intelligent, but, um, but these are like extremely intelligent stories. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not a bookseller. I'm always like, listen, it's just really good, okay? <laughs> Uh, that sounds great. Uh, and is there something else uh, you're also reading? Yes. Um, I just finished, um, I think like last week, Tori Peters's um, Detransition Baby. Um, I don't know if it's out in the UK. Um, yeah, it was just published, I think, in January. So oh, okay. very recently. Okay, great. That's also, I think, when it was published in the US. Um, yeah, and it's it's a book that like I read slowly because I was savoring it. Um, and my husband read it like in one night. He stayed up until like 4 a.m. finishing it. Um, so it's it's a delightful book. It's so fun. Um, it's also fun. All, again, so many words. Fun always makes a book seem like seem as like a backhanded, like I'm calling it light. Um, it's fun. Um, it's also deeply, deeply complex and like and so insightful about humans. Um I feel as though I was, I, I, I like underlined something on every page. Um, it's a, it's a gorgeous book and it's, and it's, and it's, um, I don't know anyone I've recommended to who's had a bad time with it. Let's say that too. 
Do you tend to read more um, contemporary fiction or kind of new stuff that's coming out? Or do you go back and reread authors that you've loved in the past or kind of, you know, are you getting recommendations from people? How do you choose what you read? Um, I think I'm very much on um, Nabokov's side about the only reading being like rereading, um, at least for me. I'm not saying that like if other people read a book one time, they haven't read it. Um, for me, in, as a writer, um, I don't get very much from a first read of a book. Um, mm. I get a lot from a second, third read. I get a lot from a 20th read, um, a wow. 50th read. And so I'm very much on the side of rereading. Um, there are like passages in books and poems. Um, that I've read like easily hundreds of times. Um, and in terms of how I decide what I'm reading, um, it's shifted a little over the years. So I'd say the last two, three years, I've probably been reading a lot more um, contemporary work. Um, and for a long time, I felt as though, like I'd spent so much of my life reading dead people that I always felt behind on, <laughs> like I spent like my entire childhood reading extremely dead people, you know, um, and like all of high school, pretty much all of college, only really in grad school that I started reading um, more contemporary people and so that's been something that I always feel as I'm sort of catching up on you know like I feel like 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 like, like Henry James is like my dude you know like, like Edith Wharton is like my friend you know like and so like for me that's always been that's always been like a, a, it, it's always felt like catch up but the last three years as I've had more and more friends that's the other thing you know who are writers um as I'm as I'm sure you know there's like of course like the pressure of and it's a lovely pressure but like you want to read your friends books you know and like mm. you want to like engage with your friends about them so there's that I do have um I keep a spreadsheet of everything I read Okay. And I started it just so that I could have a track, I could keep track of what I read and so that I wouldn't forget things. Um, but it's, it's evolved over the years. And now I actually track, um, it's in an Excel sheet. I, 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 I like secretly geekily love Excel. <laughs> it's in an, <laughs> Excel's amazing. It's so powerful. And I, and I keep wrote, I, I keep columns in which um, I track if a book is by a white person or a person of color. Um, I track if a person is by someone dead or alive, and I track um, if it's by a man or someone of a marginalized gender. Um, and um, and this year I added tracking if the, if if, I'm, if if a person is queer or straight. Um, and basically, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to I'm like permanently trying to correct. Um, not correct, but like reconfigure my brain a little bit away from a childhood steeped in Henry James at eight of four, you know? Um, and I, I always want to, at this point, I always want to, I always want to be reading um, more women and more non-binary people than men, you know, like I always want to read more people of color than white people. And if I don't pay attention to that, then like, that's something that can slip. Not the queer one. I feel so it's really easy for me to like, I'm not, like, I, I live in San Francisco. I'm a writer. Most of my friends are, like, writers <laughs> and artists. Um, I, I feel as though my, my life is so predominantly queer that at this point, if I, if I have a new friend, um, if, you know, like, with a new friend, if I find out that a new friend is straight, I'm always just, there's, like, a quick moment of, like, are you, are you sure? Like, wow. <laughs> like, I never would have thought that. Wow. <laughs> like, it's not the default in my world. And so that one is really easy. But still, I wanted to, I wanted to track, I wanted to know. Um, yeah that's excellent I love the idea I'd love to look at that and kind of see how your reading has sort of evolved over um just a few years or kind of what you're pushing in different directions but that's great um and then next up I'd like to ask you about a, a recent article podcast film or tv series that's been on that's made you think uh, it's been on your mind recently so what would you pick for that 
Yeah, of course. Um, so I just um, was listening to a podcast called The Stacks. Um, it's a delightful books podcast. Um, and uh, I listened to an ep- a recent episode and it was with um, Jenna Wortham and okay. Kimberly Drew. And it was and it's about their recent book, um, Black Futures. And it's such a beautiful book um, for anyone who's not familiar with it. I don't know if it's out in the UK. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's a, it's a collection of like images, photos, um, tweets, poetry, like essays, um, and it's and it's sort of telling a story of um, of black art and black life. Um, it's a gorgeous book. Um, anyway, but hearing them talk about making it with with Tracy, the the um, the Stacks podcast host, um, it was fascinating in that there was so much. Well, I mean, the, the whole conversation was fascinating, but part of what fascinated me was the ways in which, um, so Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham are also um, partners in life. They're, um, and, 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 they're, and Tracy was asking questions about like, how, how, what was that like, like being so close um, while working together? Um, and, and, um, and it was just, they, they, they had built so much care for each other into the working process. And I, I was just thinking, this is just like so opposite from so many of the ways in which I see um and I do this myself too you know like I see writer and artist artist friends like push and push and push themselves you know as though Mm -hmm. like as though like the last thing we need is sleep or like care for ourselves or time um and 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 that wasn't how they started out with that book and I loved I love that so much I love that I love the emphasis on care in a book that feels um I think as a, as a, as a, as just like a casual reader, like it feels like such a collective book, you know, because it's made out of so many different um, different elements. Anyway, I just think the whole thing is beautiful, and and um, and I want to learn to be more like that. <laughs> I find that really fascinating because I haven't read the book yet, but I've been aware of it. I'm not sure if it is out in the UK, but um, I listened to the Still Processing podcast, which Jenna is on um, from the New York Times, which I yeah. really love. And she's always, or not always, but she talks a lot about um, self care and in a very, um, and, and self care in a way that how it um, is a part of her sort of working, pro- like her sort of artistic working process as well, mm-hmm. and how it feeds into her. Um, and the sort of identity issues that come out of that, and so and so, it's really interesting to hear you say that it's also been a part of this book that that they, that she she's put together as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just find that kind of fascinating and very interesting figures. Like I think those two, really, really interesting. Yeah, and I think that that care. Um, I mean, you know, it it the book feels suffused by care and thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think that. I think that that like that's ethos, quite a rare thing to find, right? As well, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Versus the versus the ethos of like I will um, drive myself to <laughs> I will drive myself like an exhausted donkey, you know, which I feel like is is how so many um, so many of my friends feel um, because of how hard it is to to have a life um, devoted to making things that by and large um, markets do not report. <laughs> Yes. And I think there's something so tied up with the artistic, the idea of the artistic process that is about sort of almost wringing yourself out for it and, and really actually taking quite a lot of making a lot of sacrifices and, and almost you'll do anything for your art. And it's not a particularly healthy idea. I think there's, there obviously are ways to write or to you know, create art that it is not something that really sucks you dry in the process, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I wonder if Especially since we're um, 
I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about the sort of notion of like the rude, selfish male um, mm-hmm. artist, you know, and how that's how that's so common. And I look at my friends, you know, um, I look at my and, and this includes men, but my friends are predominantly women for sure. Um, and so many of my writer friends are so caring and so thoughtful, care so much about their communities, um, are always giving back. Um at, at, often at great cost to themselves. And I'm just like, I don't even, I haven't encountered this model except in the myth, um, in, in like the mythologies, you know? And I'm just like, I don't, how real is this? I mean, maybe it was more real 30 years ago, you know? And maybe it's more real among people who are not my friends. But... <laughs> <laughs> you just choose your friends very carefully, uh, uh, clearly. No, yeah, but I think I... you're right. There's something, maybe it's more to do with the myth of the kind of great writer or the great artist. But I think also those myths have made away. I mean, there's plenty of sort of novels or films about those types of figures who, if anything, will take very little care of the people around them, even the people they love. And, you know, everything is well for want of a better term but everything is copy it's kind of all everyone's you know you're you're kind of turning your life and the lives of others into art in a way that is um you know quite sort of vampiric put it you know to put it another Mm. way but yeah the reality is is often quite different I think yeah and on a very literal level I was just talking with a friend who um she has two tiny children and she's we're talking about a grant that we're both applying for and she was like she was like well I guess I could like childcare is a big expense for me. So obviously I could put that down. And then she just like for a moment, she was like, it's so depressing that she was like my, she's like the friends, woman friends who are writers who have kids, um, childcare is like always the thing that they ask for money for. And then my friend was like, I don't know the last time I've heard um, a male writer friend mention that they're, that they're getting childcare with their money. Um, and, and so who's doing the childcare? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I think, and obviously, I'm not the first person to point this out, but the pandemic is kind of uh, really shining a spotlight on these issues as well, isn't it? That it's not, the women in particular are having to give up their work in order to look after children. And it seems at at such a strong rate compared to the way that men are, right? Truly. um, I I don't have kids. um, And I'm so angry on behalf of, not on behalf of, but like, this isn't, this is so fucked up and it's so massive and it's so clear. <laughs> and I have a, a dear friend um, who's a wonderful writer, Nicole Chung. Um, she used this phrase that I think about like every week. Um, she said something about, she's tweeted about this too. She said something about how the phrase she uses is she has withdrawn her respect from a number of male friends whom she believed were feminists until she saw wow. how they've been during this during the pandemic with with their kids and their partners. And I was like, withdrew your respect. That is such a perfect term for what's going on. And I was like, do you have like stationery? Do you have a do you have a letter? <laughs> <laughs> do you have a letter that shows up and it says, Dear sir? <laughs> It's such a perfect way of saying it, though, isn't it? Because it's true. You suddenly see these things that you just don't see in the sort of before times, as it were. And and suddenly it's interesting that a lot of men seem to be still working the same sort of hours they put in before. And a lot of the women just really aren't. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, our shells will be back in just. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A moment. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Aro Kwan about the myth of the selfish writer, whether it is a myth or whether it isn't. Um, next up, Arise, I'd like to ask you about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way. Yeah, of course. Um, so I've been rereading um, Audre Lorde, um, I think, especially as we've been talking about Kink, um, which is which is very much a book that's interested in bodies and power and desire um and I think Audre Lorde really just like really reshaped my understanding of bodies and of power um and the essay I've been rereading a lot is the essay Uses of the Erotic um which honestly I I think I've read that like 20-30 times and every single time I reread it I both want to stand up and cheer and then it gives me chills like can't recommend it (laughs) can't recommend it more highly um, and when did you first read that? Do you think you say you've sort of read it 20, 30 times? When did you first come across it? Do you remember vaguely? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I know I I reviewed a collection of Audre Lorde's writing for The Guardian, um, and that was probably three years ago or so. Um, mm. But I had read her before then. So I want to say that I've been, I want to say she's been maybe like 10 years. Um, I've been, I've been reading her, but, but yeah, lately I've been on a, on a head she's been heavily in my um, reread rotation schedule mm. and this one in particular is it this is this essay in particular on your mind because you've been reading it a lot right now or are you just thinking more generally that she has been somebody uh, she's been a writer whose work has, has really affected the way you think about various issues to do with bodies feminism um uh, sort of identity um i want to say both you know all of the above um and i think also there are ways in which even though kink is a Kink is a collection of fiction, you know, um, and, and, but still, um, I was having, I was having like daily panic attacks, um, before Kink came out and I realized I had this terrible, I had two terrible fears that were very tied and that I've never had in my life. And the first fear was, am I going to bring, um, shame to my family? And I realized like a book that's centered on sex, centered on desire, centered on bodies. I was like, oh my Lord, like it's a book about sex. <laughs> And then a corollary terror was, and I've literally never had this thought, was, um, am I bringing shame down upon all Koreans? And I just was like, I didn't even know I was capable of this kind of fear. I didn't wow. know that I, th- that, I, that I thought it possible to bring shame down upon all Koreans. Like, it's actually not possible. There are so many Koreans and they're all over the place. Like, there's a huge diaspora. Like, I am not bringing shame. There's nothing I can do. <laughs> you can't take responsibility for all of them. I can't, I, can't, I can't bring shame down on everyone. Like, it is out of the reach of, of what I can do. Um, but yeah, it was a really physical terror, I think. Um, 
And I found myself returning a lot to Audre Lorde um, and to some of James Baldwin's essays. Um, and honestly, um, drawing strength from them and reminding myself that, 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 that I love writers who do things that they thought was scary. Um, and I, in my own work, I very much trust fear. You know, I trust it as a guidepost telling me what I might be interested in or I might like feel that I need to do next. Um, and if, 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 if that is very much a part of my writing life and it is, that means that I need to just get better at living with the, <laughs> at living with the terror. May I ask something? Of, it might be a bit of a personal question, but do you think some of the, um, some of the shame you're worrying about, particularly to do with kink, like you're saying, stories about sex, about desire, is that related um, anything to your sort of quite Christian upbringing? I'm, I'm right, aren't I, in thinking that you were brought up in a very Christian household and, and you've since um, lost your own religion, haven't you? But um, obviously your family, I think, are still quite religious. And so surely there's a lot of sort of interconnecting um, issues there, perhaps, let's say. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, of course, um, I did grow up very religious. Um, I grew up, I was, my family um, is and was very Catholic. Um, mm. And I was Catholic when I was a kid. And then when I was in junior high, I started getting much more interested in um, more evangelical um, kinds of Christianity. Um, so it's it's been like a mishmash of a Christian um, childhood. Um, for sure, you know, that I'm sure that's tied up in it. Um, my parents never gave me any sort of sex talk. I was very, I was a very driven child. Um, and my mother, I remember in high school at some point said only one time, she just was like, there's no point in dating boys in high school. It's a complete waste of time. Wait until college. Um, you're busy right now with your work. And I was like, that totally makes sense. Boys in high school seem extremely uninteresting. I was not yet aware that I was interested in more than boys. So let's <laughs> so let's say that too. <laughs> boys in college seemed extraordinarily uninteresting. Um, and, and so, yeah, I didn't even, um, before I went to college, I'd kissed one boy um, when I was 11. At camp, his name was Elliot, and that was the extent of like my sexual <laughs> history by the time I got to college. So, so yeah. The, the so, did you, is wrapped up in there. did you have to have a sort of sit down conversation with your parents and say, "Look, I'm I'm working on this this book of stories about kink, basically," or did you let them find out by some other sort of route? <laughs> um, it's been a little. It's felt a little complicated for sure. <laughs> um, my my parents um, are my mother's on social media. My mother's on Instagram. She watches all my stories. Um, she comments on all my posts. Um, there was for for a little while. Um, so you know, like when I when I came out as being queer, like I put up an Instagram post about it. So every now and then there would just be like brief radio silence, like around that post. She didn't say one word. We've never talked about it. Like oh, really. Um, Okay. And, and but then with the next post, she shows up and she's there with like emoji hearts again. So I think like, Aww. I think I think she's always showing her support, but she doesn't I think they don't quite know what to do with um, with the sexuality parts of things. Um, I was with my parents. I basically was maintaining what I feel um, what feels to me like a very friendly silence. Um, I think this is a very um, I was comparing notes with well, let, let's put it this way. I had a friend who's white say, why don't you talk to your parents and like tell them what the book's about and tell them, you know, like it will make you more comfortable. It, like everyone will probably be more comfortable if you don't engage with the book, but I love you and like, don't worry about it. And I was like, 
maybe that sounds really wild though why would I bring all that up with my parents and then I ran this by like six close Asian friends and they all were like what are you talking about a friendly shared silence is great do we not all love a shared silence that we have agreed is a shared silence it's like a safe common space so I was gonna stick with shared silence but then my mother asked my brother because my brother had a copy of the book. My mother said, oh, um, did Nuna and Nuna's older sister in Korean, which is what she would, which is what I'm called um, around, my, around my brother, basically. Um, and she said, oh, did Nuna send that to you? Um, can I take one? And my brother <laughs> knew that I was try- trying to keep my parents away from this book. So he just was like, uh, I don't know, you should ask her. And then like, and so finally I got on the phone with my mother and I was like, the reason I've not sent you a copy of Kink is only because the book is um, full of sex and I don't think you and Appa want to read it. And she was like, hmm. And she was like, that would be new to us. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, I love you so much. I'll bring it to you. But, um, but, but, but like perhaps. So I did come around to like my white friend's suggestion in the end, but it was very, <laughs> it was very complicated. <laughs> and so, yes. And there's a lot of respectful, um, well, a lot of respecting each other's boundaries there, right? Both on both sides of that relationship. So your parents clearly respect what you do, even if it's not something they won't necessarily want to read about and you respect them as well. And, and the distances. I mean, that sounds incredibly healthy to me. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, um, and at least for now it works, you know, um, I'm not sure if I'll feel great. If my parents never say one word about queerness, for the rest of my life like I'm not sure that'll feel great um but at least for now it's okay and I feel as though and I feel as though if it feels okay like that's amazing you know like it's anything feeling amazing <laughs> anything feeling okay around sexuality around queerness with parents and like and like differing um differing values um feeling okay feels like a lot exactly and it sounds like you know there's already been um you've made some progress anyway like these things don't happen overnight so it's a kind of you know <laughs> just continue to push forward at like a, you know a, a snail's pace let's say yeah. everything's happening. <laughs> exactly. um, and our final question uh for the podcast today is I would like to ask you to name a woman or a non-binary person whom you admire and tell me who it would be and why please yes absolutely um I will bring up my friend Nicole Chung, um, who is a writer, and um, she her first book published in the U.S. and, and the U.K. Um, I believe in 2018, um, and uh, she's an, she's been a nonfiction writer, although now she's working on fiction. Um, and why I admire her, I admire her for a million reasons. Um, her writing is is wonderful. First of all, um, she's also she's she's had such a hard year um she's had such a hard few years she's lost um people she loves very much um very quickly um and and she has shown such grace um through all of it through some of the hardest hardest experiences that i think a person can have um she is always she's another person i think of as like as like a kind of person I want to be more like, you know, like she's like always on the phone mentoring um, some other writer, some other editor, um, especially writers of color, especially women. Um, and, and yeah, it's just like incredible writing and she's an incredible person. That's wonderful. I love it when um, our guests choose kind of friends, people they know personally, and this this question. It's always it's always just a sort of heartwarming end. Um, and just for any listeners who haven't come across her work yet, could you name what what was the book that she's written most recently? Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, her first book is called All You Can Ever Know, and it's a memoir. Um, it's an adoption memoir, um, mm. and it's it's incredibly moving. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Reese. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Aro Kwan. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. <laughs>